Welcome to the Indie Jigsaw. This is where we take all the little pieces of why Scotland needs to be independent, what kind of country we want to be, how we're going to get there, and try and put them together to see what that picture looks like. It's the Indie Jigsaw. Hello and welcome to the December roundup of our Indie Jigsaw. Scotland has 25% of Europe's wind power potential. Well, at the beginning of December, Storm Arwen swept through Scotland, giving us an idea of what wind power really means. But the outdated system of national grid charges has a disproportionate and negative effect on our ability to develop this potential. Down at Westminster, MP Alan Brown used the 10-minute motion to introduce a bill to revise these grid charges. Here's a section of his speech that explains what the situation actually is and impact on Scottish industry if this is allowed to continue. Now, Mr Speaker, the current grid charging system was introduced in 1992 following privatisation of the electricity market. Now, back then, it was based on the concept that electricity is generated from coal, gas, oil or large nuclear stations. And yet, with this embedded concept, then the charging system now still is geared at incentivising power generation sites close to the centres of population, or more accurately, the closer to London, the better. It's just utterly absurd that the UK government has taken the welcome step to phase out coal-fired electricity generation, but they're retaining a grid charging system that is based on where to build coal-fired power stations. It is completely bonkers. Now, the obvious strategy would be to consider what a future grid will look like. Where are the best locations for the generation of clean renewable energy? What will the grid upgrades be required to facilitate that? Then analyse what's the long-term cost of the grid upgrades and then devise a fair system of charging to facilitate that. And that, Mr Speaker, is exactly what this bill seeks to do. Now, let's be clear, having the highest geographical charges in Europe uh, creates an uneven playing field when looking for investment. The majority of the countries in Europe don't have locational charges. The ones that do charge way, way less than is imposed in Scotland. Now, Mr Speaker, if a developer... Uh, built a grid-connected turbine in each of the following countries Finland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Austria, France, Slovakia, Romania and Belgium, then the combined locational charges for these nine turbines across nine countries would be less than the charge imposed in a single turbine in the north of Scotland. That illustrates the investor competition for Scotland, let alone the fact that so many other countries, such as the Netherlands and Germany, don't impose geographical charges. And worse, the UK government are building interconnectors that allow electricity imports, which are exempt from these grid charges. Now, I'm supportive of an interconnected energy market, but at the moment, this system incentivising international investors to, to invest in other countries. Now, Scotland has 25% of Europe's offshore wind potential, so future planning should be about how to maximise this, especially when the UK government's got a 40 gigawatt target for offshore wind by 2030, which is reliant on 10 gigawatts coming from Scotland. Now, Scotland's also got fantastic potential with floating offshore wind, especially now the High Wind project is already operational. So, again, forward thinking should be about maximising opportunities for these leading technologies. Now, Mr Speaker, it's not just us and SNP saying changes required. Wider industry says it too. Scottish Power, SSE, Vattenfall, RWE, Red Rock Power, Renewable UK and Scottish Renewables have all called for changes to the grid charging regime. And indeed, a survey by SSE showed that 93% of industry stakeholders support reform of the current transmission charging regime and 84% of respondents stated that the network charging system acts as a barrier to the delivery of their renewable projects in Scotland. So what does it take for the UK government to sit up and listen? Now, what could be more iniquitous than suffering the highest grid charges in Europe? Well then, if you look within the UK energy market, Scotland's further disadvantage, especially in comparison to southern England. Connections in the south of England results in generators being paid to connect to the grid. It's a physical impossibility to have a negative cost of managing one area of the transmission system 
So therefore, this appears to be another method of levelling down, not up. Then, if we look at the the Beatrice array off the coast of Moray, HIP pays a unit electricity price of £4.50 to connect to the grid, but a comparator in southern England is paid £1.50 per unit of energy. Why isn't the leader of the Scottish Tories speaking up about this? And another example in numbers is that a one gigawatt site off the north Scottish coast will pay £38 million a year to connect to the grid. Yet the same size offshore wind farm connecting southern England will get paid £7 million a year, a £45 million a year differential between the Scottish and English sites, which over 20 years, that's nearly a billion pounds of a difference. The Scottish offshore wind farms are now 20% more expensive than those in English waters. And when the lowest price is winner takes all in the contracts for difference auctions, this becomes a major issue um, in putting investment in offshore renewable energy in Scotland at risk. That means less direct jobs, less supply uh, chain work, and potentially hampers uh, a just transition for the oil and gas industry. This subject was also covered by Craig DL in his Green New Deal talk for Glasgow Southside recently. And how about this for an eye-watering statistic? Scotland right now is severely disadvantaged by the UK energy grid. It's not necessarily a conspiracy against Scottish renewables, although the fact that um, there have been calls to change it in the House of Commons in the past couple of weeks and they've been outright refused by the UK government, you can start to think down that road a little more. But it was certainly a case that that the UK energy grid was designed for a, a prior age. It was designed for the age of coal, when you wanted to build your power stations close to, but not too close to your population centres, London and South East chiefly. And it was easy enough to move the fuel for those power stations by train. You can't do that in the renewable age. You have to build the generators where the resources are. But the impact of this is if right now you built a one megawatt wind generator in the middle of London, you would be paid a subsidy to connect it to the national grid of 4,500 pounds a year. If you built that same turbine outside my house right now in South Lanarkshire, you would pay a tariff to the national grid of £10,500. Now, unfortunately, the Tory government at Westminster has refused to countenance reviewing the grid charges, so that's yet another thing that we'll have to uh, wait until we're independent. These long, cold, dark nights in December remind us just how important our eating is to our comfort and quality of life. At a recent Nordic Horizons event, chaired by Leslie Ruddick, the discussion turned to the Danish system of renewable heat. Here, Leslie is joined by an expert panel from Norway, Denmark and Sweden to talk about district heating systems and other good practice from our Nordic neighbours. You might know that in Scotland, we have only 5% of homes on on district heating. And that might be very related to the fact we have 85% of heating delivered by gas, which mostly comes from Norway, where you guys are smart enough to not use it. That's one problem. And it's one that uh, Denmark has been very much to the fore. The district heating systems from Denmark are being quoted by everyone as what we should be going for. But actually, also in Sweden, there is small, smart grids just of a couple of buildings which are actually becoming producers of energy. They can even be charging up electric cars. So I wonder if we could just stop and go through these things a bit one by one, because it would help us a lot. Our big challenge is this question of heating, because at the moment, people are being left to have to finance that whole change themselves with yet another whole set of individual heating systems instead of a big shift to district heating. So can we just stick with that question of heating for a moment and just ask Soren, first of all, I mean, how does it does it work in Denmark? When we decided to, um, to cut the dependency on imported oil and coal from outside in our energy uh, policy from, I mean, back from the 70s when we had the oil crisis, uh, Denmark actually decided to 
to, to work on a policy that made us independent from imported fuel from outside. So that was very pragmatic attitude to this. And, and so we have a corporate ownership model that has been used since the Vikings, where, where people can get together and invest in, in infrastructure or things that serves the interest of the common. And, and, and district heating is exactly uh, kind of that tool or instrument to do that. So instead of importing fuel from outside, we looked around on Samsø in many other places of Denmark to see what could replace heat uh, uh, fuel like oil and coal, and that was straw, wood chips, it could be waste. I mean, resources that we had flying around uh, in our neighborhood that was either composted or just uh, evaporated into thin air or producing a problem for us in dumps and other places here also. So that was actually a very early start on using local resources at a very reasonably low cost uh, by uh, putting in, installing a piping system where you have like a main pipe in a village and a central boiler where you can burn all these fuels or either or of these fuels and circulate the hot water to all the houses and take out the individual heating system. We have been able to produce that cheaper than imported fuel from outside, which is paying for the cost of it. And then we have a common maintenance program, common insurance and other things. So there's a lot of ripple effects that is uh, helping the local community. And on top of that, another ripple effect is that when you import fuel from outside, then you have to earn the money locally and buy an imported product. Where here, we pay less for the same product, but we buy it from the next door neighbor who then pays tax in the local community. And we have a circular economy that will help and grow the local economy because it also produces jobs and stuff like that. So, so this is a very typical Danish pragmatic attitude to change that instead of having a centralized big system where you serve uh, a lot of purposes with one one supplier, we have a multiple faceted supplier system where we use local resources to replace something that is very expensive from outside. That that, that was a quite short version of, of, of the system. I don't know if that is. That was a masterpiece of clarity, actually. What's interesting there, because I see there's a question from Helen about is there a challenge uh, to deliver district heating in remote and rural settings? I mean, clearly not. I mean, Egg have got their little off-grid system. It's not a district heating system, but but you do actually have district heating on the island of Samso. What about just on the mainland? How do you cope with just one house here, one house there? You can. There must be places that district heating cannot reach. I- Actually, from the very beginning, it was it was typically farmhouses that started this also because they had they had extra supply of straw or biomass of some kind, cuttings from from fences and woods and stuff like that. They they didn't know how to use, and they could buy a modern furnace where they could make their own little individual heating system where they also could heat the, the stables or to dry grain or hay and stuff like that. So it, they could they could supply just one house. But then they bought some bigger boilers and then they could supply the next house as well. And then the, the, the limit of this is also there's a limit to how how long a distance you can have between two houses, because then the heat loss in the pipe will be too significant. And then you have to make a new system when 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 the, the length extends a certain certain capacity. And so we have a lot of different scales of, of this system. It can be one, three houses. It can be 100 houses, 500 houses or several thousand houses. So, so, so it's kind of the same thinking, but it, it, it scales with, with, with capacity and, 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 and distance and, and resources. So, so today, what, who cannot be reached by this is using heat pumps, because heat pumps are using electricity, and electricity is produced from the nearby wind turbines. So we can use the electricity locally to produce the same kind of heat, and, and it doesn't need, it does, there's no heat loss in the pipe, because you serve it by electricity. So... so we are working with a system we call uh, district heating without pipes, or kind of a wireless pipe system where they can pay the same per megawatt hour that, that they do on a water-based system, but they use electricity, but they don't own the facility, the, the heat pump. It's owned by the cooperative district heating system. So they just pay the same and the system will supply them with a heat pump instead of using imported fuel from outside. And, and the reason for this is that we want to meet a very low carbon emission. Uh, so, so this is kind of the, our end goal to be carbon free uh, within, the, within a, a decade. Uh, so we need to kind of cut down on carbon emissions in, in every source we can find. Is, is all of that dependent on you having very big cables with the mainland to have that or not? Well, yes and no. 
We are depending on big cables mainly because we are exporting a lot of electricity from our base, from local based wind turbines. Because we put in a lot of extra capacity because we wanted to compensate for transport. So we have some really huge big ferries, and the ferries are guilty of about 40% of the total CO2 emissions. So that's a heavy polluter. So, so before we have electric ferries or hybrid electric ferries, we have compensated for the diesel that, that the ferries are using. But today we have a, one of, of the ferries we have run is a hybrid electric ferry. So we are gradually moving into a transport system where we are using the electricity from the wind turbines as well. But in the beginning, we needed the cable to export and compensate for the emission by producing CO2-free energy and sell it to the main grid. But we want to get rid of that dependency and, and sort of start using it locally when technology allows us to do it. Okay, wow. Yes, wow is all you can say. I so want Scotland to be a Nordic country. Now let's see what Marlene spotted for us this month. You're about to listen to a, a short snippet, and it's taken from a recent meeting which was organised by Scottish Independence Convention. They got together Peter Ryan, Tim Rideout, Cairn von Sweden and Robbie Mochrey. Robbie Mochrey is a lecturer in economics at Heriot Watt University. It's Robbie Mochrey that we're going to be listening to now in this little snippet. It's only four minutes, and in that four minutes, he describes a sort of template for the process of setting up the Scottish central bank currency and banking system. And we also learn a bit about the Canadian banking system. Also, there's a clue about how to tell what the date's going to be of the second independence referendum, and, and we wouldn't want you to miss that clue. Okay. I think that in practical terms, and I, I think that this one, one of the things which Tim has actually been quite clear about is that we are probably looking at a three-year period. In or, and um, I, I think Peter's paper as well also emphasizes that we're probably looking at three years in order to be able to get to the stage when we have a Scottish currency. Now, um, there are all sorts of ways that we could do this. We could, for, I mean, I, I, one of the things which struck me as very odd in 2014 was that we were going to get everything done for setting up a new state in 18 months with really almost no preparations beforehand. And, uh, you know, what, what Tim describes in his work in particular, because he's very interested in institutions, is really a five-year process which begins two years before the referendum with the formation of a Scottish Monetary Institute. My view is that you'll know if the Scottish government is, when, you'll be able to work out pretty much when the Scottish government is intending to have a referendum, not when it publishes a referendum bill, but when it publishes a bill in order to create that Scottish Monetary Institute, because that's one of the first signs that it's putting in place the measures that it will need after um, uh, after independence, and the Scottish Monetary Institute forerunner to the central bank. Um, by the way, we need a central bank, whether or not we're going to have our own currency, because the central bank has the job of, um, uh, well, ha has the job of being the banker to the government, as Karen has, uh, although it is already part of the government, as Karen has explained. But also, uh, so we can perhaps think of it as being the money issuing department of the government. Um, but also something which is extremely important is that it regulates the rest of the banking system and it provides the liquidity which the rest of the banking system needs. And bluntly, it stops the rest of the banking system doing what they did in 2008. That's the job of a central bank. So we're going to need a central bank anyway. We're going to need a monetary institute. This is not something that can be done overnight. And if we only start doing it after um, we've ha had the referendum, then probably we are looking for five years afterwards. Um, and we probably are starting to get onto something which looks fairly like the Growth Commission's timetable. So um, uh, that, that really was, I think, the point that I was wanting to make. Someone has said here, Richard Murphy has suggested that an independent Scotland should regulate Scottish banks to do only what is permitted, whereas UK banks can do anything except what is not permitted. I'm not going to get into that. Instead, I'm going to talk about one of my favourite subjects, which is the Canadian banking system. And Canada has an interesting structure in which the, banking, the Bank Act has to be renewed every five years. Now that means that the bank that, that the, the powers which Canadian banks have are discussed democratically. Um, and also within that, 
Canada has also very sensibly, um, the, 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 it's not the central bank which regulates banks, by the way, in Canada. It's a separate government uh, or non-governmental institution, the Office of the Supervisor of Financial Institutions. And what that what all of this means is that Canada's largest banks, the equivalent of RBS and Bank of Scotland, have been told they will not be allowed to enter into any mergers. The kind of ridiculous buying up everything that moved and some things that didn't move, but loads of things which just weren't making money, which Fred Goodwin in, in, engaged in in the run up to 2008, couldn't happen in Canada. The regulators wouldn't allow it. So um, I think that what, what, what we can say quite straightforwardly, the, the, the point which Richard Murphy is making is very important, that if you have good governance of your banking system, then it's much more likely to be stable. You're listening to The Indie Jigsaw. On the 30th of November, Craig Murray, the blogger, was released from Sockton Prison, where he'd been serving uh, an eight-month sentence for contempt of court because of his coverage of the Alex Salmon trial. On his release, after serving four months, he was met by Independence Live and a group of well-wishers and gave a speech, much of which was to do with his views on the rights and wrongs of his own case and his conviction. And if you'd like to watch the full speech, it is on Independence Live's YouTube channel. But this clip covers his insights into the Scottish prison system, which I thought were very interesting and shows that as a country, we still have work to do if nobody's going to be left behind. I want to say something you might find surprising. I want to say that uh, the Scottish prison system is broken in many ways, and I'll talk about a few of them in a moment. But I will say that working within that prison, uh, there are a great many very good people. And that I found kindness and respect and friendship in there, both from prisoners and from staff. And many of the staff in that jail, working within a system uh, which is fundamentally flawed, do their very best to correct the flaws of that system by effort and kindness and are actually very good people. I was very, very pleasantly surprised. And um, I think on the grounds there are too many of them for them all to get in trouble. I might add that every single one, every single one of the dozens of prison officers with whom I had dealings said to me that they did not think I should be in jail. And a couple of them went further and stated straight out that they did not sign up to join the prison service in order to keep political prisoners. And that, that I think is very important. But I also want to talk about the men I've left behind in there, the prisoners. I said earlier that Scotland jails more of its population than any other Western European country. And a very large number of people in that prison should not be in prison. Over a third of the people in that prison are there on remand. They haven't been convicted of anything. It is common for people to be on remand for 18 months before their trial. And the norm is over nine months. And a fair proportion of those who serve a year or more on remand are then acquitted and another proportion of them are given sentences of less than the time they served on remand. That's one reason why Scotland's prisons are terribly overcrowded. And the other point is the vast majority of the people in that jail come from the poorest housing schemes in Scotland. The vast majority of people in that jail were born into poverty and born into addiction. One thing I didn't realize before I went in is that one of the reasons why paedophiles are so hated by prisoners is that a very high proportion of prisoners suffered abuse in their own childhood, often in institutions. And a very high proportion of the people in that jail have, known, have never known normal family life, have known nothing but institutional care since childhood on. 
going up through foster care, through young offenders' prisoners, ending up in prison. I was kept for that because I was a civil prisoner. They decided to keep me on the new arrivals hall, I suppose, um, where people spend their first two nights in prison. And I saw people come in to prison again, in one case three times in the time I've been in there, having been released, offended, released, offended. And prison is doing nothing to rehabilitate these people. The vast majority of people in jail need health treatment for addiction, not imprisonment, and they are not getting it. It is a shame on Scotland. It is a shame. Like most middle-class Scots, I had believed we were a progressive nation until I saw the people left behind and realised how poor our educational and social policies are and how they fail the poorest and how then we covered it up by sending them and locking them away. Scotland has great potential. Scotland can be a great country, but we need a much more radical approach to social policy. There's no point, there's no point in acting for independence if we don't run our society on fundamentally different lines to the Tory policies we have inherited. There we go, a stark reminder of what happens when you treat drug addiction as a criminal problem rather than a medical problem. Talking about the introduction of of safe drug consumption rooms, the Lord Advocate Dorothy Bain, QC, said that um, ways of stopping people who use such facilities from being prosecuted could be looked at again. And the question is, what is in the public interest? So that's an encouraging sign. But when you look at countries like Portugal have managed to dramatically reduce the amount of people taking drugs and certainly the the deaths from drug-related injuries. It is just so frustrating that this is yet another area where Westminster is like a chain round our necks, slowing us down, stopping us doing what we want to be able to do. And still on the topic of public health and the drag factor of Westminster, As the Omicron version of the COVID virus starts to spread exponentially throughout Scotland, the First Minister gave a statement in Holyrood. In this little clip, she explains, once again, the limitations of our finances as a devolved government, having to rely instead on the UK government to borrow on our behalf. Indeed, it could be argued that we should be going further which is why I need to also explain a significant limitation on our ability to act in the way we think necessary to protect public health. And in this context, I am genuinely not seeking to make a political point, simply to set out the factual position. Many of the protections that help curtail COVID come at a financial cost to individuals and businesses. So whatever we can, we put in place financial packages to protect people's health, jobs and livelihoods. However, the Scottish, Welsh and Northern Ireland governments do not have the ability to borrow to meet the COVID funding challenge. UK funding arrangements mean we rely on the Treasury to do so on our behalf, and the Treasury has responded well throughout this pandemic. And although Scottish taxpayers foot our share of the bill, money only flows to the devolved governments when the UK government makes decisions. Financial support is not triggered if the devolved governments take decisions we consider appropriate for public health reasons, even though it is our responsibility to do so. So because the UK government is at this stage not proposing any further protections, a position I do not agree with, there is no funding generated to compensate businesses for any protections we think are necessary and wish to put in place. That is not acceptable in current circumstances and with the Welsh and Northern Irish governments we are pressing for a fairer approach that takes account of our devolved responsibilities for protecting public health. But for now, this is the situation we are in, and it means our public health response is curtailed by lack of finance. There are further steps we could and would have considered today, particularly around hospitality, had we the financial ability to do so, but we don't. However, I can confirm that with some considerable difficulty, we have managed to identify within our own resources around £100 million that we will use to help businesses, 
mainly those in hospitality and food supply and in the culture sector, affected by our advice last week on work Christmas parties and further affected by what I have said today. The Finance Secretary and her officials will be engaging with affected sectors immediately to consult on and confirm the details of support. We will work to make money available as soon as possible. Uh, businesses who previously received support through the Strategic Business Framework Business Fund will be contacted directly. We have also identified an additional £100 million to ensure the self-isolation support grant is available for those who need it, given the expected increase in the number of eligible people who will be asked to isolate. Making this money available will involve difficult reprioritisation, but we recognise the importance of providing as much help as we possibly can. However, this is the limit of what we are able to do within our own resources. I know it does not go far enough in compensating businesses for what we are asking of them now, and of course no government can rule out having to go further in the weeks ahead. So we are continuing to press the UK Government to increase support to enable us to respond adequately to the public health challenges in the weeks ahead. Now, while Nicholas Sturgeon was giving that speech at Holyrood, the Tories attempted to blindside her by announcing some additional funding from the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, or to give him his full title, obscenely wealthy Rishi Sunak. But of course, on closer inspection, not only was this not new money, it was money being brought forward from money that had been expected in January anyway and was already included in the Scottish Government's budget plans. But even worse than that, the net effect of the announcement is that ScotGov is £48 million worse off than they thought they were going to be before the announcement. How's that referendum coming on, Marlene? Glasgow Pensioners for Indy invited Mike Russell to come along to one of their online meetings. Uh, he agreed to come and uh, he was speaking on the subject of the path to independence. And, and this indie jigsaw snippet you're about to listen to is how he sees his job now going ahead. He's president of the SNP. He's also political director of their independence movement. Well, thank you. Thank you, Marlene. And thank you, Alan, for um, the introduction, too. And I'm grateful for the invitation to, to speak here today. Marlene, you're right to say that I am qualified to be a member of this group, and indeed I may well sign up. Uh, I'm 68 years old. I retired from the Parliament when I was 67, and I had hoped to spend a, a bit of time on something other than politics. But um, Nicola then asked me if I would uh, help to essentially to, to restart the campaign. And I think it's, that's an important place to begin with. I have said and said often over the years, in recent years, that I would like to have seen a, a, a referendum on independence as soon as we could possibly arrange it after the Brexit um, uh, decisions that have been put in place. And indeed, my own view was that that could happen in the late latter part of 2020. But of course, the pandemic made that impossible. And it still makes normal politics or normal referendum politics very difficult indeed. We've seen today, for example, the, uh, the drafting in of, of some military personnel to two health boards in Scotland. The pressures upon our health service are enormous and the pandemic is, with, is still with us. And the type of campaign we need to have to win a referendum and to win independence is a campaign of conversion. It is a campaign in which we meet people, we talk to people, we address meetings, we listen to questions, and we change people's minds. It's not actually the type of campaign we've just been through in, in, in May uh, this year, uh, which was a very, very unusual campaign, but it wasn't that type of campaign. And therefore, I don't believe it is possible to hold a referendum campaign until we are in a more normal situation. And I am as impatient as everybody else in this call. And I, Marlene, I fully understand the imperative you are referring to. I feel it myself on a daily basis. But we can't afford to go into a campaign in a way that's not going to win it. And we need to win it by converting people. And there are people out there, what I would call soft nose, people who will change their minds. But we have to get to them and we have to persuade them. So I want to start on that to say that I don't know when precisely the referendum will be. Uh, Nicola has given a very strong indication, and she's, I'm glad that she's done this, that she wants it to be in the first half of this parliament, which puts it in at the latest towards the end of 2023. Um, it is quite clear that we have the votes in the Scottish Parliament. And of course, we've also taken a different position as, as a government in the run-up to the, the election in May, not to, to put ourselves in a position of, of people saying to us, what are you going to do? to have the referendum to say we know what we're going to do, which is we'll introduce a bill, and if that bill passes the parliament, as it will, we'll hold the referendum. 
And actually, the question is, what is the UK government going to do in those circumstances with a clear cast iron mandate to, to hold that referendum? Is it going to go to court and stop that happening? Because if it does, it would be going to court to stop the democratic wishes of the Scottish people being fulfilled. So we, you know, there will be a referendum. I'm sure of that. I say that Nicola and others aren't interested in the referendum is simply untrue. And I know it's untrue. Certainly not true of me. And it's not true of her. And it's not true of anybody I know in, in those positions. Uh, but it's got to be at the, the time in which we can win it and we can make those conversions. So when I was asked to, to restart what was taking place, I set myself essentially three tasks. And the first one is to start the flow of information again, uh, and also to make sure that we're answering some of the difficult questions again. And uh, this flow of information has started. Members of the SNP are receiving uh, a regular mailing from me with information and, and statistics and, and, and I hope helpful things. In addition, there's good work being done in other bodies. Um, Believe in Scotland, Business of Scotland, for example, are doing good work in producing material and I'm encouraging people to get hold of that, uh, to make sure it's available and make sure that people have it. And also things like the eight-page, an eight-page printed leaflet, which we produced uh, earlier in the summer for, we're hoping to provide actual material for distribution by the SNP um, in, uh, in November. Uh, in the run-up to Andrews Day. Now, I would like to provide more for people who aren't in the SNP, but I don't have the resource to do that. And also, data protection considerations means I can't use, for example, mailing lists that were previously put together for other purposes. But I hope, and this is coming to perhaps the, the bridging point, to the second point, I hope we can also establish better relationships across the whole YES movement. There are a range of bodies like this one, which are non-party political, which have many members of the SNP in them, but have members of other parties and have no party in them. And I hope we can find a way to work together constructively to win that referendum and to move to independence. It won't be the same for those who were there as the campaign in 2014. Politics has moved on. Our views of each other have moved on. And we'll have to find a way to work together in positively and courteously agreeing to differ on some issues. And that will mean a different type of campaign and a different type of envisioning of what an independent Scotland would look like, uh, about the ability to change as well as what changes. And I've started that dialogue with other, yes, groups. I mean, this is part of it, but as some people on this call know, I've also encouraged getting together to look at the issue of a, a transitional constitution, uh, which is something that will reassure those who are not convinced by independence that their rights will be protected as we move towards independence. And that's been very important in a whole range of places across the world when independence has become a, a key issue. Uh, and in places where that has not worked, then independence has been damaged by it. So the first task has been to start the flow of information and to draw information done. And there's work also being done in government and Nicola announced in the programme for government that that work was restarting, work that I was doing, that my officials were doing that stopped in March 2020. Um, work was being done on things like the transitional constitution, work being done by researchers, and work being done across the Yes movement. And all those things are, are, I see things I can help with and encourage others to be involved with. And the third task I have, which is largely a, a task within the SNP that has some implications outside, is to slowly but surely build the capability of the party so that when the referendum bill goes into the Scottish Parliament, and when it comes through at the other end and the referendum date is set and we're ready for the full campaign, that the party is ready. The structures and the organisational ability of the party is, is ready. And I will play that role alongside people at HQ and elected office bearers of the party. And that's what I'm trying to do. Now, all that is regrowing the campaign as far as the SNP is concerned and also engaging with others in a way that we weren't able to do during the pandemic and also during the difficult winter and spring when we've had disagreements within the Yes movement that in, you know, for many of us have been very disturbing and, and very difficult. You know, it's, it's no secret I was Alex Salmon's campaign manager in 1990 when he became leader. I worked very closely with him, as did Nicola, as did John, and it's been, it's been a difficult period for us and a difficult period for everybody in the movement. And I can understand the frustrations that have built up. But we have to get through that, we have to move through that, and we have to get on with the task of building the independence campaign. And that's what I'm trying to do. Now, I hope that answers the process and, the, and, the, and the, the technical questions. In terms of the questions of, of what independence will mean and how it will operate and the, how to get there and some of the key issues that we need to decide on, some of those questions need fresh answers after the pandemic, after Brexit. 
that they're not the same answers that are contained in this uh, this wonderful publication, which I keep on my shelves, uh, Scotland's Future, which was, of course, our manifesto for independence in 2000. And, and uh, I used it uh, as my core document going round Argyll and Butte. I, I set myself the task in, in 2013 and 2014 of doing a, a meeting in every village hall in Argyll and Butte. And those of you who know Argyll and Butte know there are a few village halls. Um, and I think I managed almost all of them. But it won't be the same as that, because many of the things in that, not all of them, have been passed by, by Brexit and by the pandemic and by where we find ourselves. And other issues arise such as, you know, maybe we need to have aid memoirs for people on key issues, but maybe we don't need to produce another 600 pages. Maybe the 600 pages was the approach for that time and is a different approach for this time. But we do need to provide uh, solid information. And we know from opinion polling and we know from, from focus grouping that people want impartial information. They want information they can rely on. And they don't necessarily feel they get that from political parties, uh, but they don't necessarily get it from, from, from yes groups either. So we need to find ways of, of securing that for people. If you'd like to listen to the whole of the recording of that meeting, you'll find it on Pensioners for Independence website. That's at pensionersforindependence.scot and the, the talk was called The Path to Independence. This is a clip from the Building the Scottish State show, and this week Dr Mark McNaught's guest is Gordon McIntyre-Kemp, and in this clip he asks him about polling that Believe in Scotland has done in relation to the well-being economy. If you go to the Business for Scotland site, there's a there's a uh, an author called Polling Team. It's not always myself, or it could be various people, Richard, etc., and some of the researchers have put uh, information up there. So you can find a lot of the, the data that we published there. We obviously, we asked the yes-no question, and we've probably published the yes-no data uh, more often than any other data. But a lot of what we collect is, is private data, which we use to in discussions with uh, the SNP, in discussions with the people working with to, to create policy suggestions, those sort of things. But the main piece of information that we can find is that there is a difference between Scotland and England and how we think what, are, what, what our values are, how dedicated we are to those values, uh, there are differences in opinions in terms of, and you might say it's because there's more conservatives in England, and I think that's possibly the case. So you would expect there to be slight differences. But if you really want to see the differences, you just need to see who England elects and who we elect, right? Mm -hmm. Never mind the parties, never mind Boris and Nicola and the personalities, etc. We elect people to the left of centre. They're electing people who are very significantly to the right of centre. And so basically, we uh, create, looked around the world at well-being, which we've been campaigning for. It was, it was in our mission statement. Uh, it was all about well-being right from uh, 2011 onwards. And so we looked around the world at governments that were talking about well-being, and we took a sort of policies that we could say, well, this is a well-being policy, and we put them all down on a bit of paper, and we thought, these hang really well together. You could use this as the foundation blocks for building a well-being socioeconomic approach. And so basically, our mantra is that Socialism and capitalism are dead. They're last century's ideas. The challenges of this century, specifically the ecological challenges we've got with, with, with climate change, etc., cannot be addressed by the old ideas. We need new ideas. And a well-being approach where we can still grow our businesses, still grow our economy, still create wealth, but do it much more fairly than we currently do and also factor in that we protect the planet and we protect society as we grow. So growth might be a lot slower. Consumerism might have to drop considerably, uh, but we think there is a, a way to approach this that has, you might say, some socialist principles in dealing with society, some capitalist principles in dealing with business. But the truth of the matter is that you can't have a strong economy without a strong society. You can't have a strong society without a strong economy. And all that socialism and, and capitalism have done, all that left and right, is we've just swung one way to the other and failed to invest in one half of the formula, and that's why we keep on booming and busting. And so basically that's what our polling told us, that the people of Scotland are ready to vote for this. And if you say, we want a well-being approach to economics in an independent Scotland that will be radically different from the rest of the UK because it will look at fairness, uh, uh, health outcomes, environmental outcomes, and uh, make all of these things as important in our thinking as economic growth is, how would you vote in a referendum if that was the approach we took and it jumps 10%? So a well-being approach takes us to 60-odd percent. 
kind of going back to the the point I made before about the economic policies, how you know do make sure that when people vote for this and okay, yeah, I want to vote because of this well-being policy, that it is actually enacted. Essentially, we are a lobbying organization. We lobby the SNP to make changes. And so we are saying to the SNP, here's our data, here's what we're finding, come and talk to us about this. And what we're suggesting is that they put out the alternative jurors, that they put out a new uh, Scotland's future type document, but base it on well-being. And that, that is the manifesto upon which people are voting for independence. This is what they understand they are voting for. And it comes from the Scottish government. And therefore, people will believe it. Now, we can say it and people will say, yeah, you're the biggest yes organization that has a little bit of credibility. Well, it has credibility amongst the yes community, but it really doesn't have any credibility amongst the, the unionist community if there is such a thing. So we need to get the Scottish government to make these commitments, and that is what we are trying to do. And that's what we'll spend the next few months working very closely, we hope, with the Scottish government to make sure that it has uh, a clear uh, path to using a well-being approach, uh, or at least as much of it as we can get them to agree to in an independent Scotland. And that, that gives you the surety that that is what's going to happen. I totally agree with you, and I think that they're fantastic policies, but actually how they come about, the more you can work with the SNP government and, and get it to be yeah. you know, binding on it, the, the, obviously, the better. You're listening to The Indie Jigsaw. Despite the best efforts of the Tories to muddy the waters in budget terms, this week Kate Forbes delivered the budget for 2022-23. And this next clip is the first part of her presentation of that budget. I've just included the first five minutes or so because it sets out the ambition of the budget and the constraints. The impact of COVID is, of course, a factor, but that's nothing compared to the impact of Brexit. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Today's budget will help tackle the climate emergency, support economic recovery and reduce inequalities. It comes at a crucial moment for Scotland. It's the first budget of this parliamentary term and it's also the first budget of this partnership government developed in cooperation with the Scottish Green Party. It delivers on key commitments made in the Butte House Agreement from free bus travel for young people to doubling the Scottish child payment. And as a result of that partnership, this budget redoubles our efforts to meet our emission reduction targets in a fair and just way that creates economic opportunities, harnessing opportunities for green jobs, for prosperity and for greater well-being. PwC and Lloyds Banking Group both conclude that Scotland is the top-ranked part of the UK for green jobs and green economic prosperity. And so the budget supports Scotland at a point of transition, balancing our response to the immediate pressures of COVID and the cost of living crisis with longer term action. If my last two budgets have been shaped by our immediate experiences of COVID, today's budget aims to lift our eyes to the future, while of course remaining vigilant to the effects of new variants. This is a transitional budget as people, businesses and services get back on their feet. We can't leave anybody behind in our determination to increase prosperity so the budget directly contributes to our national mission to end child poverty by doubling the Scottish child payment and investing in employability schemes to get people back into work. Presiding officer, government can never deliver on all of these ambitions alone. So we need to work collaboratively with all areas of Scottish life, public and private, national and local, to build on the renewed approach to partnership that we saw during the pandemic. However, in the absence of COVID-related funding, despite the very real ongoing impacts of the pandemic and combined with the pressures of inflation, this budget is a budget of choices. And while the budget lays the groundwork for a green economic recovery from COVID-19, we must be clear that the UK government's spending review hindered rather than helped us on that mission. In practice, with COVID funding having been removed, our day-to-day -day funding next year is significantly less compared to the current year, at a time when we undeniably need to invest in the economy and help public services recover. 
That means the budget cannot deliver the resources that all of our partners will want. And let me be clear, there are areas where I would have wished to go further. But today I present a budget which does address key priorities, targets resources for low-income households and paves the way for future investment over the life of this Parliament. It's a budget of choices, but I believe we have made the right choices. It's a transitional budget, maximising funding where we can to deliver key priorities now, but also paving the way for future fiscal choices. Alongside today's Scottish budget and medium-term financial strategy, I'm publishing a framework for the Resource Spending Review, which will be published in May 2022 and set out the Government's multi-year spending plans. The framework sets out our principles, and I look forward to contributions from members across the Chamber. Presiding officer, let me now update Parliament on the economic and fiscal context and take a moment first to thank the Scottish Fiscal Commission for the forecasts which inform the budget. Supply chain bottlenecks, labour market shortages, inflationary pressures and rising energy prices are all placing extra pressure on businesses and households trying to recover from the impact of the pandemic. The Fiscal Commission forecasts a, a level of long-term economic damage to the Scottish economy from COVID-19 of around negative 2%, similar to the OBR's forecast for the UK economy. This means the long-term impact of Brexit on the economy will be worse than that caused by COVID-19, with the OBR attributing a 4% long-term reduction in living standards due to the UK's exit from the EU. The impact of Brexit has not been felt equally across the UK. Latest figures from the ONS show that Northern Ireland is the only part of the UK where the economy has recovered nearly to pre-pandemic levels. That's not surprising, given that Northern Ireland has, in effect, remained in the EU's single market for goods due to the Northern Irish Protocol. While all other parts of the UK have seen a negative impact as a result of Brexit, the scale of that is three times higher in Scotland than in London. We said that Brexit would be bad for Scotland, that it would have a differential impact on our economy, and as is clear, it is, which is having a direct impact on our budget. Be under no illusion, the budget I'm presenting today is smaller than it would have been if it wasn't for the impact of Brexit on our economy, a Brexit that has been imposed on Scotland against the express wish of the people that live here. And the final clip we have for you for 2021 comes from Holyrood's Economy and Fair Work Committee. Were you aware that there are changes coming in from the 1st of January 2022, which, as I'm recording this, is in about three weeks' time? Here, MSP Colin Smith asks for the opinions of Brian Hepburn, who's the Ops Manager of DFDS Group at Shetland, and... Richard Ballantyne, who's the Chief Executive of the British Ports Association. So can I ask, Brian, in your experience, are businesses like yours and others ready for these possible changes that come into play from January? Well, we view the whole thing with just a, a kind of exclamation of dismay, really, you know what I mean, but, uh, just with the changes. But uh, we are getting as ready as we can be. In some ways, the, the no more postponing of declarations will be helpful for some items of general freight. We're hoping that it's not going to lead to bottlenecks at various ports. We've had bottlenecks at ports, just we, the paperwork no match. And sometimes it's good enough to get it out of the EU, but it's not good enough to import it into the UK. So what ends up happening is it ends up lying at the port. And that happened to me just this week, actually. It was importing some boats to Holland. So we're trying to get as ready as we can, but it's more about getting more customers ready as well. We need to try and uh, pass the suit and, and, and spread the kind of load. So we need to do, we're doing a kind of process education amongst everybody that we currently work with, a lot of them. That we're saying about the South Coast ports not affecting us, but will affect us in, in a lot of ways for our for our exports, because where, where fish primarily goes through those ports in the South England, they don't go through, because uh, obviously there's no, there's no direct link really between Scotland and uh, Europe. It has to go through England. So that's where we're, we're shipping our fish, and that's all the fish. That's everything from uh, all the Scottish sea farms, uh, all Maui, all these big salmon producers, all coming out of Larkall, all getting done. Either they're going air freight to Heathrow or they're going across the channel. So we're needing to be ready to ensure that we don't incur any further delays on that route. 
we're actively preparing and uh, we're hoping that we're going to be ready. We're just hoping it's going to be easy enough. And have you had any issues? I mean, even Northern Ireland is a domestic market, but for obvious reasons, there are, there are, there are problems. Uh, there are, uh, have you experienced problems when it comes to simply transport and domestic products from Scotland to Northern Ireland? It's nearly worse than important to the continent. Um, it's funny that there's different like, actual barriers seem to be unevenly applied in, in reality. Like, you know, for example, like importing directly into Holland is harder than importing into France. Uh, going into Ireland is harder than going into France. It shouldn't be. It should be the same. But it's but there's just seems to be difficulties. I could get some proper examples and send them across to you all for later on. You know, if you like, so you can sort of see. But no, it's um, trying to get something into Ireland, Republic or, or Northern is 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 bad. <laughs> I mean, it's just been it's just been grim, um, and that's across that route, Ken Ryan. Yeah, it's no it's not the best. Thanks very much for buying. I think those examples would be really helpful. To, to follow uh, Brian and, and Robert's um, suggestions and comments, there um, it was. Uh, uh, it's quite an interesting uh, case. We've had, of course, a lot of the controls enforced at European borders, and uh, Robert's absolutely right about the sort of bureaucratic changes. So I won't repeat what he's saying there. But what I'll talk about is the sort of physical nature of some of these changes that are being phased in next year and. Now, to start with, in quite a basic term, uh, and notwithstanding what Brian said about a lot of the Scottish exports going through English ports, for example, uh, and, and, and obviously um, in the reverse, a lot of commodities that are consumed in Scotland will have come through an English or, or a Welsh port, for example, somewhere else in the UK. But a lot of the, um, uh, the unitized activities in Scotland is focused on containers. Uh, and apart from that, we don't, as we heard earlier, we don't have any roll-on, roll-off links. So the major challenges of um, facilitating border checks at Scottish ports is not perhaps as um, dramatic as it may be at some of the uh, Roro ports in England that have been much publicised about holding trucks up for minutes or uh, even hours to, to unpack and inspect goods. That said, uh, Scottish ports still have to comply with new control regimes. Um, many of them are building uh, infrastructure or preparing um, if infrastructure to facilitate those checks. And they could be relatively light, uh, light touch checks where you have um, environmental or port health officers inspecting things like timber or other products that are coming in. Um, but that, that is all a cost and an extra activity that we haven't had to deal with. And that requires resource not only from the port operator, but local authorities quite often in terms of environmental officers. Uh, and also, of course, um, costs on those traders. So making sure that Scottish trade remains viable is, is essential. Uh, another positive about Scotland is that Scotland is very much um, an export-led uh, economy, unlike the rest of the UK, where um, it is heavily import-balanced, um, uh, etc. Um, and those commodities that we export in Scotland, uh, things like whiskey and, and fish, I think, Brian, mentioned aquaculture and fish is, is I think, has been or, or possibly still is the number one uh, UK export by value. And uh, a big bulk of that is Scottish fish and seafood products. Those products, it, the, the changes, uh, because we import, we export much more than we import on those products. We, 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 we've already had those changes come in this year. And notwithstanding those challenges that Brian articulated, we're not expecting a big dramatic move there. And then just a final anecdotal um, example, and, and, and I concede to Brian's frustrations with um, getting goods over to Ireland. But there are now, of course, different regimes in place, even on the island of Ireland, with Northern Ireland, although it's a domestic route, uh, of course, they are applying de facto customs rules. And uh, however, the enforcement of those rules is being done slightly differently to the Republic of Ireland. So we have seen the traffic that travels between Great Britain and the island of Ireland actually move up and hemorrhage towards northern England and Scottish routes uh, from the west coast of um, England and, uh, and of course, places like Ken Ryan, Loch Ryan, into Belfast and Larne, um, uh, more so than uh, those services from Wales into the Republic of Ireland which have really seen a decline in activity. So ironically, we've seen a slight uptick and uh, an increase in activity on the 
GB Northern Ireland routes, which is which uh, some of the Scottish ports have done rather well out of. Two points which really stick out from that clip is, first of all, the stark reminder that there is no direct link between Scotland and the EU. But secondly, how nice it was to hear the chief executive of the British Ports Association confirming that Scotland's economy is an export-led economy, unlike the rest of the UK, which is import-led, and that fish and whisky are still the UK's highest value export items. Well, for as long as they belong to the UK, that is. So on that cheerful note, that's it from the Indie Jigsaw for 2021. Have a lovely Christmas. Have a great new year. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you all in 2022. Bye now. I'm a